0: Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. As we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with one of the most unique professional athletes in all of sports, Muggsy Bogues. Lost the ball in a crowd, Bogues out with it. Muggsy Bogues all the way to the hoop. And now, here's Here's your your host,
1: Brett Boone. Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. Today on the program, we're talking a little hoops. Our guest today is one of the most interesting athletes in all of sports. He played 14 years in the NBA. His numbers retired at Wake Forest. He's in the Wake Forest Hall of Fame. And in 2020, he was inducted into the North Carolina Sports Hall of Fame. Today, you're going to get to meet the shortest man on record to ever play in the National
2: Basketball
1: Association. Ladies and gentlemen, Mugsy Bogues.
2: <laughs> Appreciate that, Brett. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Hey, it.
1: Muggsy, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, wow, a lot of things I want to get to. I, you know, I was a big fan growing up. I loved watching you. It, it just seems I played a little hoop as a, as a kid. And I'm thinking, that is the last man I want covering me from the inbound pass. Florida, I'm glad I don't have to do it. But uh, anyway, I, like I said, big fan. I'm excited about this interview. Your given name is Tyrone. Where did the Mugsy come from? There's got to be a story there.
2: Oh, absolutely. You know, as a kid growing up in the city of Baltimore, you know, out there just amongst all the kids, you you know, you got to greet you're going to have to get some sort of nickname, you know, just in order to fit in. That's just the way we grew up. Uh, I had a friend by the name of Lumpy Joe, a friend by the name of Russ, a friend by the name of Dr. Krip, uh a friend by the nickname of O.J., and none of them was their real names. Um, so Tyrone turned into Muggsy at the age of seven mm-hmm. years old. And that's basically the way I was playing the game of basketball. They saw a the kid – still on the ball a lot. And at the time, um, one of the shows just come on every Saturday called the ba- uh, the Bowery Boys. And one of the Bowery Boys, um, one of the characters on the Bowery Boys was a kid named Mugsy, And he was small, and he was kind of the leader, sort of kind of – I don't want to say he was – well, he was sort of the leader of the group, always su- suggesting things, what they wanted to do, and, um, and that kind of you know, – my little group, you know, we always had that same kind of, you know, uh, settings. And one day, Dwayne Wood said he's mugging everybody. And then all of a sudden, you know, he said, "Well, he's Mugsy. like that kid Mugsy on the show." And ever since I was seven, I was Mugsy. I didn't like it at the beginning because I thought they was talking about my mug and everything. But you know, as you get, you know, as you time goes on, it, it become part of you. And, Many people don't even realize my name is Tyrone. Today,
1: yeah, and I, I, I mean, I always do my research, you know, before I have a guest on, and yeah, that was interesting to me. I said, I always, I always thought it was Bugs, and then I thought about it. I'm going, it is kind of a nickname, but his real name is Tyrone. I got a couple <laughs> buddies like that that I've, I forget their real name. I've been calling them by their mm-hmm. nickname for so long, and uh, yeah, interesting, interesting, but. I was blown away by your childhood, how much you were you were able to overcome to be the Mugsy Bogues of today. And you wrote a book, and it was called In the Land of Giants. I want to hear about you uh, growing up in Baltimore.
2: Well, as I said, you know, as a kid, trying to pursue a dream. Um, a lot of folks, of course, because of my size, didn't really, you know, believe that the kid that size out there trying to pursue a sport that was supposed to be meant for big and taller guys. You know, that was something that I wanted to do. Um, got fortunate enough, I was, you know, I got taught by a man that understood the game of basketball. But before that even happened, you know, the confidence confidence level wasn't as high. Um, because, you know, you hear all the short jokes. You know, you, people say sticks and stone may you hurt your bones, but words will never hurt you. That's not true. As a kid, you know those things really stick and they really hurt. Um, but unfortunately for me, you know I got—I was at the wrong place at the wrong time and got shot. And at the age of five years old, and you know waking up in the hospital with buckshots all over your body, not even knowing what happened and what really took place. But luckily, you know there was only buckshots and not the actual bullet. Um, so I think from that moment on. Um, I don't think anything anybody said to me from that moment on, uh, had any impact or any effect on me and, you know, pursuing the game, like I said, I got a talk by the man, by Leon Howard, who was a diminutive as well. Um, but he installed that information and then Reggie Williams, you know, Reggie Williams who happened to get drafted in 1987 with myself. Uh, we grew up together, and we was like Mutt and Jeff, my mom called us. Wherever you've seen Red, you've seen me. Wherever you've seen me, you've seen Red. And, you know, we were like two sponges in, in that gym trying to learn that information from Mr. Howell. And once we received that information, that's where everything took off. You know, understanding it and knowing what you're doing on the basketball court at that size really became important because then um, I knew I had talent I knew I had skills. Um so, you know, my mindset that every time I took on the basketball court was if I play against the best, if I have success against the best, I must be included with the best. And having that mindset every time I took the court allowed me to to excel and um and you know, was fortunate enough to play on the one of the best high school teams that people say has ever been assembled, which was Dunbar High School, where we was fortunate enough to have four guys that make it into the NBA and three of us was able to get drafted, you know, in the first round in 1987 during that draft. Uh, myself, Reggie Williams, and the late Reggie Lewis, may um, rest in peace, uh, was drafted by the Boston Celtics, and we already had a teammate of David Wingate who was already there. So, you know, that was, you know, that was a kid that had a a dream, a vision. Put action towards it and passion behind it. You know, was able to excel and to become that Mugsy Bows that we're here today.
1: Yeah, you you mentioned that Dunbar High School, and I was, you know, you mentioned the guys that that went on to the NBA from from that group. You went sixty and zero your junior and senior year. <laughs> you didn't lose a game. Um, <laughs> That's pretty awesome. But but as a kid, was it always hoops for you? I mean, obviously, you knew at a young age that you had a talent for this game. But did you pursue anything else? Is, uh, I think I think I read that you wrestled a little bit and you toyed with playing baseball.
2: Absolutely, yeah. I played other sports. I ran a track, uh, football, I wrestled, and um, played baseball. You know, those were a lot of the sports that was in the neighborhood. And wrestling was really – Something I had another passion for um, besides the basketball, uh, and mainly because it didn't come with any type of criteria with height. It was just mainly your skill set, and I was short, stocky, strong, and fast. And that was the criteria that I think that wrestlers needed. And my wrestling coach always tried to persuade me to continue doing that. Always, he felt like that was a, a means of giving me that a, a a way of getting to college. Um, and not have to pay for it, Um, but he, you really didn't realize that I had a bigger passion just as much as for the game of basketball, Um, so, you know, that was, those were the sports that I pursued, and, um, but unfortunately, you know, I couldn't wrestle and play basketball at the same time, because that was happening during the same season, I could get away with it when I was younger, Uh, but once I got to high school, you know, the season ran, um, together, and that was impossible for me to do. So I had to make a choice. And, of course, basketball was the way for me. Um, but, you know, that's, that's just what we all did as kids, you know. Did others, other played other sports. But, uh, but that wrestling, also I was a pretty good ping pong player. Um, you know, I was a city <laughs> champion, you know, barely could see over the table. <laughs> um, but I was pretty good in ping pong. To this day, I still love the game. And um, so it's um, those were the, you know, the sports I, I kind of got myself, myself involved in.
1: And, yeah, when we were kids, and I've talked about this a lot on the Boone Podcast with a lot of different guests, and coming up for kind of our generation, I think you're a little bit older than me. I'm 52 years old.
0: But mm-hmm.
1: We were 50 brought 50. up and and playing every sport. And, and whatever, you know, like you said, wrestling <coughs> was – the same time as basketball. So you had to pick one or the other. But especially as kids, you know, I grew up playing basketball and football and baseball, and we had seasons. And I was always from the belief that playing football and playing basketball made me a better baseball player. I see the kids today. And they're brought up and a lot of it has to do with their parents is these travel balls and we got to play year Mm. round. We've got this coach and that coach. You know, I kind of want to take these these parents aside sometimes and say, listen, you got to let your kid be a kid. He'll he'll decide Mm. for you. And soon enough, we'll find out if he's a real talent in what he loves. But to, to this year-round, you know, specializing in one sport, I think it does more harm than good for these kids and in, informing in on what they want to do. And uh, what what's your take on that?
2: Uh, it truly is because they're trying to train, and it's more the parents, as I say, they're trying to train these kids as a professional athletes, you know, which they're not, and that's where it takes the fun away from it. You know, you as a kid, you got to try a variety of sports because you may not know what you're really good at until you actually put yourself in that you know, in that situation and not being exposed to it, it really, you know, it don't even give you an opportunity um to even take part of it. It's just like, you know, you go up to another country and where the main sport is just hockey or and and, and everybody just been doing hockey. Now all of a sudden someone introduced you to a game of basketball. And all of a sudden now the eyes light up because you've been introduced to something else besides the hockey. So you know you got more ways to try to sharpen your scales to see what you actually are: your baseball player, your football player, your track star, your ping pong wrestler, or whatever it may be, because you tried all those sports. And and as you alluded to, you know these parents they get trainers and they stick with this one particular sport, and they think the progression of that. You know, as he progressed or she progressed in that sport, then they probably going to be that person. You know, going forward, but as you know, as younger you are, and as you get older, other guys get better, kids get better. You know, because the game is spread around the world, and then all of a sudden, because that person been fixated on that one particular sport, you know, didn't give himself a chance. And you're right; it may do more harm than good by not being able to participate. And the variety of sports, and to actually see actually where your gift really lies.
1: Yeah, because uh, you know, I'll I'll have conversation with parents, and you got to kind of handle them with kick gloves. I did a, uh, when I retired, I did a little coaching in my son's travel ball team, mm-hmm. and and I think they just really, you know, they they see the economics of sports now, and how how much money the big boys are making at the highest level. What they fail to understand is how good they are at that highest level. And just because little Johnny here is a really good 13-year-old player, they have no idea what's what's in store for them as as you start getting a higher level—high school, college, uh, professional baseball—in my case. And and you kind of want to let them know without offending them. You know, because you still want them, mm-hmm. their kid to be active in the game. But yeah, it's it's kind of a cat and mouse game, and and I found that over the years. When you were, yeah,
2: I mean, when you were, go,
1: go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead.
2: No, I'm just going to piggyback on what you said. Yeah, because you know it's, um, because you don't know what you're going to be, and you know when you, when they're just spending so much time, you know pretty much just doing that one particular thing. You just don't know what you're going to be. So, you know, you just really got to, again, explore a little more to find out what that gift you may have. Um, because you do have a gift. God's giving you a gift. Um, but sometimes we recognize it later than others, and sometimes we don't recognize it at all. But um, more so the parents and don't, because they don't understand the pros. They're pros for a reason. You know, it was a process for them in order for them to get to that point. So and just like another kid, you know, you, you got to let that process to take part. I mean, take place because, you know, you, you're you not going to be that fine piece because you're still trying to grow, you know, and you're only going to know so much at the age that you are, and it's always a process. So hopefully they can, you know, understand that part of it.
1: In the game of basketball, as you mentioned earlier, uh Obviously, when people saw you for the first time, well, he's not seriously going to be an NBA player because in the NBA, there's there's such a criteria for the masses that you got to be a certain size to compete with guys in the NBA. In baseball, I had it a little bit. You know, it was I was always Mm -hmm. on the shorter side. Oh, is he going to be big enough? Is he going to be strong enough? And I was kind of fighting that a little bit too. I think in in modern day baseball. Uh, guys like Dustin Pedroia, who just retired, current players like Jose Altuve, they've proven mm-hmm. that 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 little guy can can win batting titles. So that's kind of been debunked in my game, but it's never been a size thing for the MLB. It's been more, it, it's a skill, it's a skill set, and, and the smaller players usually played the middle infield. Bigger players usually played first base, third base, caught. But at five three. Before you became an established, known, you know, stud, say at Dunbar High, how did people respond to you when you took to the court?
2: Oh, of course, you know, they laughed. I remember playing in the high school game. Um, The actual guard pointed down to my head like it was going to be an easy day, and he was feeding off the crowd. Um, And my coach kind of caught a whiff of that, and he – you know, they called the Lord timeout, and we went over to the side, and he asked me, "Are you all right?" I'm like, "Coach, I'm fine. It's just gonna be a party out here. There's this game." And uh, but so those were the more or less, you know, it was something that I, I accepted, I understood. It, the way I put it in perspective was, in, the inquisitive minds want to know why this little kid out here playing this game until they actually see me play, and um, and then that spelled and that tells the story within itself. Um, but, of course, you know, because when we're in the layup line, a lot of, you know, people are like, like, why they got that little kid out there playing on the <laughs> team, you know. And they expect me to be sitting on the bench watching. And then here it is. Here it comes, the starting five. And um, one of the starting fives that's running out there, you know, they just really get a big kick. And you can hear them laughing in the audience and in the stands. But then actually when the game starts, they see me steal the ball, lay it up three times in a row and see that other point guard frustrated, and uh, they can't get the ball across half court. And then all of a sudden, everything turns into, oh, my goodness, this little kid can really play. And, you know, so that's how it always goes, and you know, until you got to that established point where people always, when people, did recognize you, you know, because of the level that we was on at Dunbar.
1: Yeah, and that, that brings me to my hoop. The day the day my hoop dream ended, I was in. Uh, I think I was a sophomore in high school, and a player that that went on to play uh, in the big leagues. His name was J.T. Snow. He was a first baseman for the Angels and the Giants, and he was the big man on campus. And he was at one of our rival high schools. And I was kind of, you know, I was that sophomore that would kind of get in at the end of the game. I'd, I'd play mm-hmm. on JV and then and then dress for the varsity game. And I remember we were at Los Alamitos High School and I got in fourth quarter and I go over the corner. J.T. Snow is kind of the man. He's a little bit older to me, but, you know, he's their point guard. I just go up for a jump shot in the corner and out of nowhere comes J.T. Snow. He rejected me 10 rows into the seats and and I just got I was so embarrassed and I looked at J.T. I said, how can I be this much better at you in baseball? And you embarrass me on the basketball court. I never played another game. That was the end of my career. And I figured (laughs) if I played against Muggsy Bogues in high school, that might have ended my career too in the same day. (laughs) But uh, all right, so you finish finish at Dunbar, like I said, 60-0 and junior and senior year, and you're off to Wake Forest. Was it always Wake Forest for you?
2: Well, not exactly. Um, I had quite a few other schools that were interested in me. Seton Hall was coming at me pretty hard. That's where P.J. Colesimo was there at the time. Um, Virginia was coming at me, but not as hard as the other two um, because they had Ricky Stokes. He was a small guard as well at there. Um, Georgetown, uh, because of David Wingate and Reggie Williams were there. Um, Coach Thompson, you know, wanted me to come, but I knew that they had a sophomore guard and Michael Jackson, and, you know, I felt like I would have beat him out, but, you know, I had to try to go through all that. I, I didn't want to go in a situation like that because I felt like I could have better opportunities a better, opportunity, better offers to suit, that was suited for me. Um, but it came down to Wake Forest and Seton Hall, and Wake Forest was more or less, you know, stood out because of the conference. You know, it was one of the toughest conferences, At the time, you know, the Big East was there, but the ACC was was really loaded, you know, with the teams in Maryland and UNC with Michael Jordan and those guys. And then by that, Maryland, you got uh, Spud Webb and those guys down at NC State, Vince Hamilton, those guys at Clemson. Then you got Mark Price, John Souten, those guys at Georgia Tech, and then Johnny Dawkins and all those guys at Duke. So it was loaded. And I felt like, well, and plus the situation for my mom and my parents, you know, they couldn't travel to go and, and go watch me play. So knowing that my games come on every weekend on Saturdays, they could just turn on the tube and, and watch their little baby play. Uh, and then the challenge for me off the court. I knew Wake Forest would put me in a better situation. If things didn't work out um, on athletic-wise, then I have a, a pretty good degree uh, to fall back on. To where I can kind of go out there and make a, a better life for myself. And, you know, Wake, again, as it was a culture shock for me coming from Baltimore to Wake Forest because it was becoming a white school. And we were the minority on, on on the campus. And dealing with that for the first time was an adjustment for me, you know, especially my very first year. You know, I at the plan at Wake. First year, we won Elite We made it to the Elite Eight. Um, we lost to the Fire Slam Jammers, and Nakeem Lange, one of those guys. Um, and then after we got back, I had a, a test, a mid-term, I mean, an exam to take, but I wasn't prepared. So I called my professor and told him that I wasn't prepared. And he told me, just come and sit in and sign the test, and I'll give you a makeup test. So that's what, actually what I did. went in and sat down and wrote my name and, and, and left. But once I got home uh, for that time, I got a call back from the school saying I had to come back to the school because I got turned in on an honor code violation. And they said that I was accused of cheating on a test. And, you know, it was mind-boggling. I'm like, what test are you talking about? They talked about Dr. Pritchard's class. I said, well, I didn't even take the test. I, Dr. Pritchard gave me say said I, have, I could do a makeup. So while I'm there... Um, you know, they said, no, we got to, we got to go through the honor code. You got to, you know, we got to go through a trial. So I had to get a, an attorney. Actually, I had to get my teammate who was practicing law at the time who represented me and we actually had a full, full trial and I had the test testify on my behalf. And they said that I was guilty right after they saw the test and I didn't take it. Well, you know. But well, come to find out, you know, a bunch of group of guys who was on that honor council, they were in the lower races. They've been trying to get African-Americans off the campus, and they had felt like they had the opportunity at that time to do it. And one of our teammates overheard them saying that, so they was forced to take it up to the to the, to the the president, and they decided to reverse the decision because they had kicked me out of school for, until my junior year like I was going to come back to the university. If I would have left, um, but once they reinstated me and said I was eligible again, you know, I still felt bad. I felt, I was, you know, felt embarrassed. Well, I didn't feel embarrassed. I was angry. I felt like, you know, this was something that I wasn't, you know, um, it wasn't one for people who was trying to come after me. And I was the first time I was about to quit, about to leave something and and once I talked to my mama and he and that boys, I knew that I was going to quit. And I just, you know, became the best decision that I made. And here we are today.
1: So it was just a big misunderstanding. But, you know, I understand what, you, what you're what you talking about. Uh, the people that aren't in the know don't know the whole story. They just hear these rumors and they just think, oh, he probably got out of it. But he, there's probably a small percentage of people that think, no he probably was guilty in some way he got out of it and that's why he's back here and and it was all a misunderstanding from the get-go
2: well yeah well yeah it wasn't nothing that i got up. of yeah it was basically the fact that i didn't even take the test it was a bunch of kids was being, you know ran races and they was trying again you know get a couple african americans off the campus and that presented itself and i guess that he tried to do it but you know like i said Man Upstairs has a bigger plan, things prevailed the way it, it turned out the way it's, it's supposed to have turned out. Right. And, um, and, you know, and again, you know, again, that's the best decision I've ever made by deciding to go to Wake because it made me a better individual. Gave me the opportunity, to, you know, to, to, to see individuals as they are, you know, and just see people who are who they are and, and hopefully educate them, you know, on the differences that we are and that we move forward. But, you know, I have no regrets going to Wake Forest.
1: Very cool. In '86, you won a gold medal, or uh, gold, gold medal in the FIBA championships, uh, representing the United States. Uh, tell me a little bit about that.
2: Well, that was the '86 Goodwill Game. That was the last collegiate team to go represent the United States uh, before they sent the Dream Team, and we were right. the last collegiate team to win a gold medal. Um, myself, David Robson, the Kenny Smiths, the late Army Gilliam, Dirk McKee, the Steve Kerr and those guys. Uh, we was blessed to go over there and, and put on a nice show. Uh we played US the the uh USFR at the time, which was Russia, uh in the finals with the big Sabonis, who was pr- pretty highly uh rated over there, was kinda looked upon as the Michael Jordan. Uh, over Europe that, that we have here in our state. So uh, that was a big challenge for David Robinson and, and us as a unit. But we was blessed and gracious enough to where we pulled it out and was able to stand on that polo and hold that cup and put the gold medal around our neck. And that was a sweet moment. And because during that trials, um, it was a lot of big names, you know, the Kenny Smiths, um, the Mark Jacksons, um, the, uh, at the time, Curtis Aikens, there's a lot of big time Steve Alfred, those guys, you know, and nobody thought that a kid, Monkey Bowes, was a small guy, would be the one that on that team. And of course, it was a lot of jogging, you know, a lot of conversation whether or not I should be on that team or not. Colude Olsen was the coach, uh, who coached Arizona University at the, rest of the time, and Bobby Kremens, who coached Georgia Tech, who was familiar with me because of the ACC. Um, he knew of me and he, he was kept telling coach Olsen. He, he got him telling, he's the real thing. He's the real thing. And coach Olsen during practice without, you know, the patrols, you know, every team I was on, we won. So he decided, okay, well, I will put him, try to put me on the worst team. That may there's out there. And unfortunately, you know, whatever he felt that was the worst team, we still won. So that was uh, something that kind of, you know, was a sticking point for him to decide, well, we we really got to have this kid on the team. And, now and uh, not only did I made it, I wound up being you know, a start on the team. So it was it was a good moment, you know, good opportunity to, to represent the United States and bring back the gold medal.
1: You know, I, I would think by this time in your life, you've been dealing with this your whole life, you know, because of because of your height. And you just every time you just keep proving everybody wrong. I had to get to a point at certain at a certain point in your life where you go, oh, another challenge. Well, let me well let me beat your butt again. I mean, I would think at that point it's kind of getting cool. Like, are we really going to? Oh, we took him. And, he's, and he succeeded again. I just think time and time you just keep proving people wrong, It almost became a badge of honor. Like, go ahead and challenge me again. See if I could see if I can rise to it. I, I think that that's what I, as, a, as an outsider, as a fan, that's what I think would be cool at some point. Probably at the beginning, it was kind of a burden, but as it kept going on, you knew how good you were.
2: Yeah, I mean, self confidence was definitely uh, strong. You know, I believe in me, and you know, of course, uh, now and, and that's why I always put it in perspective to where they don't know the inquisitive minds. They just don't know until they actually see um mean, play and then, you know, you go from there. And, you know, it, it's each level is the same. And, and now, even being able to accomplish the gold medal is the next step. You know, well, he's too small. That NBA, you know, these guys are thick and strong. These are the best in the world. Um, there's no way that he'll be able to compete on that level. And already, you know, for me in my mind, I'm like, I already play against those guys. They just haven't moved on from college now. <laughs> and I had success right. to against them. So, uh, but it was just an opportunity to keep, you know, putting yourself in the best light, showing that, you know, you belong, you are capable, you're skilled enough, uh, just like anyone else. And um, the challenge, the opportunity came. I got invited to Portsmouth, um, and which was one of the first NBA invites to um, to see what type of uh, player, you know, that that you are, and, and where the NBA scouts can come and watch you. Uh, I went down there and, and just turned it out. I mean I, I really became I think I was the M V P of the tournament and they saw what I was capable of doing. And, you know, I had two young gentlemen on my team that happened to be um hall of it wound up being one well, one of them wound up in the Hall of Fame. I had Scottie Pippen and a kid by the name of Ricky Winslow. Um happened to be on my team. He was part of that five slammer jam I was talking about. And then Port Smith, you know, Scotty at the time was projected to go he's from Little Rock, Arkansas, so not many people knew about him. He was projected even to go you know late first round, and I was projected to go late first early second and um so he and I was teammates and once we left that tournament, we were the two most talked about players um uh, from it and so the, from that we got invited to the Chicago camp, which was the big the big last, what they call the combine now, where, you know, the last, where all the NBA coaches, the scouts, and they only get the opportunity to really see you see in Chicago. So I went up there and I had a great showing, had a 44-inch vertical um, leap in terms of the stats that we had to do, some of the um, drills we had to do. And, again, I turned it out to the point to where once we left that draft, I mean, that combine in the day of the draft, you know, I was selected 12th overall in the first round of 1987. Um, So that was, you know, that was a great accomplishment. and I felt like being able to go shake, you know, the late commissioner David Stern hand and put that hat on like all the big guys, you know, have done it. You know, that was something that I was dreaming, visualizing, and it came true. So the weight of the world was lifted off my shoulders that day.
1: Yeah, that's, that's really awesome. In 86-87, the ACC leader in steals and assists in all ACC. All right, this is where I get confused a little bit. So you get picked by the Bullets, mm-hmm. but you start your career and you're playing for the Rhode Island Gulls. Tell me where I missed
2: something. <laughs> well, the summer just before the draft start, You know, they had a, a semi-pro league called the Rhode Island Gulls. And it was just a time just to keep in shape. You know, you get out and to play against some okay. former professional players. So that's why that, that league took place. Got a chance to play against like guys like World B. Free, uh, Sugar Ray Richardson, you know, guys like that. Um, so it kind of tuned me up before the draft started. Okay. All right.
1: Now now I'm on the same page with you. Uh, <laughs> so you go, you go to the Hornets. You play there from 88 to 97. Become a huge fan favorite. Uh, it's an expansion franchise, you know, like we had with the with the Florida Marlins. And a couple of my buddies got got picked in that. Um, Eighty nine and ninety five. Your top ten and assists every year. Who are some of the toughest guys for you to defend in the NBA?
2: Some of the toughest guys to defend. You know, it was a little different for me. I mean, everybody was taller, so I kind of was their pest. Um, um, and you know, guys try to post you up. You know, I was strong, so that, you know that where was it? I, I'll, I'll say that. Yeah, I go with guys like maybe a Magic, uh, Penny Hardaway, some sort. They would try to, but I think the biggest problem for me was more or less a guys who can shoot the basketball. Because for me, I like to help off my man, to help my teammate. And a guy like Mark Price was very hard to leave, you know, because he was the Stephen Curry before Steph Curry, the type of shooter he was, a sharp shooter. So guys like him, you know, you had to stay glued to him. You couldn't let him get his release off. And knowing those type of tendencies that he had, you know, you wanted to make sure that you stood close to that because – you know, any given moment for me, I don't want players to score 25, 30 on me. You know that ain't you know that ain't how I like that. I try to make sure you, you know you, we playing the game and you have you doing what you're doing, but not the one that you're taking over the game and you the difference maker. So I always made sure that you know that I understood the, the, the scouting report and what my guy did and what he liked to do. But just to more or less the answer to answer the question, guys like Mar Price was more or less the, was the difficult guys to guard against.
1: And the guys that you were going into the game, you knew he was going to be your matchup. Who are the toughest guys for
2: you to score on? To score on? Well, nobody was tough to score on. I mean, it was, I mean, yeah, you just a matter of a sh- hitting your shot. <laughs> That's the right. place of it. Just mainly knocking down your shots, yeah. Um, but, yeah, scoring on somebody, yeah, it was it. You know, there wasn't nobody. I mean, you could be 7 7, and it don't matter. You can hit that ball over the top of their fingertips.
1: Yeah, because I was trying to think going over that, I'm thinking, well, how can I, what would be equal to, to what I'm about to ask him in baseball arena. The only thing I can think of there's certain guys when I went to the park I'm going no I don't want to face him tonight. You know for me I'd go Mm -hmm. to Atlanta I'd go to Atlanta in the 90s and I'd be looking like with one eye shut looking at USA Today go tell me it ain't Maddox, Glavin, Smoltz back to back Mm -hmm. to back nights. let Let me get one of the the fourth or the fifth starter and it seemed like more times than not when I'd roll into Atlanta it was Maddox, Glavin, Smoltz every time and I'm just thinking all right, I gotta find a way a to battle tonight, and and maybe mix in a knock because I know I'm not hitting <laughs> three or four hits. I'm not thinking about going deep. If that happens, great. But uh, yeah, I was just thinking, how can I correlate that to to basketball? Uh, yeah, you mentioned
2: great 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 similarities. Yep.
1: Yeah. You mentioned Steph. Uh, you played with Del Curry, and Larry Johnson uh, in your Hornet years.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Del Curry, Larry, Alonzo, yeah, Del and I played eleven years together. You know, he, we played nine in Charlotte and two in Toronto. And, you know, and, you know you're know, playing with teammates like that, you know, you go to war for them, as you know, uh, building a bond with those type of guys. But it was special with Dell. You know, like I said, he and I, out of my 14 years, we played 11 years together. And, you know, he and our families are close. And, of course, the kids and watching them grow and seeing Steph and Seth you know what they're doing right now, and I mean, who knew that the little airplane ride I was giving him in the locker room—they turned out to be the, the greatest shooter in the world. <laughs> Isn't <laughs> I mean, it weird? Just, now we're
1: getting we're getting old, and and guys we played with their kids are in the big leagues. You know, I just I, I just sent my I just sent my son off. He's an A ball with the Washington Nationals, and it's like it just seemed the other day I was changing his diapers, and and I'm seeing <laughs> buddies of mine, kids in the big leagues, and I'm going, this is crazy. I'm not this old. <laughs> you know, congratulations guess, on it. I guess we
2: are. <laughs> yeah, we are. We are. Time has wings, of course. Um, but I mean, we just got to enjoy the, 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 you know, the journey that we took and the journey that they on. Um, and having a kid to take part of, you know, especially it got to be special. And that's what I tell Dale all the time. It's a special thing thats a kid able to sustain, you know, reach their – their, their dreams, and it happened to be this similar dream that you had, you know, as a kid and playing on that level. And, um, and I'm just happy for, you know, the way they turned out because not just on the court, but who they became off the court. You know, they're great kids, and you love to see those type of guys away. Uh,
1: when you went to the Hornets, it was a, uh, an expansion team. Um, yeah. Could baseball make it in Carolina? Big League baseball? Could,
2: well, you know, we got we got Monoliths here. We got the Knights here. Um, you got with, with the three professional teams, with the two professional teams, you know, baseball with 162 games, it'd be challenging. You know, uh, Mr. John Beaver been trying to bring Major League Baseball here for quite some time. Um, but I'll never say never because it's all about, you know, uh, servicing and getting out and, and seeing who how much interest there's out there. Um, but you know it's you know one hundred sixty two games it will be challenging though, especially when you know you got three of the, two of the other main sports here with with similar uh scheduling, you know where we'll probably overlap one another and it's a yeah, small cause market too
1: yeah, because baseball I think baseball is going to expand in the next couple of years, they're already talking about it uh but brings me to your your minor league career, although brief. And you were there with with Dell, your buddy Dell. Okay, so we're going to turn back the clock a little bit. I know you played in a minor mm-hmm. league game for the Gastonia Rangers. You played my position, second base. You went <laughs> zero for two. Tell me about that night. And it, did it give you a little bit of a? Did first of all, what in what reference did you play? Was it a was it a uh, well, I'm say, you know, PR uh, move that, or what was it?
2: Say that again. I missed the last part. No,
1: was it a PR move? Did you take it serious? I I just want to hear <laughs> no, your version. No, you tell it better no, than me. No, no,
2: I took it. You know, do you know, I took it serious. You know, it was a, even though it was a PR uh, move, but you know, anytime you get an opportunity to pursue a play a game that you love, you know, you gotta take it serious. And I was out there, in Dell, you know, he got drafted. You know, as a baseball player from the, I think from the Oyos. Uh, when he's, you know, he he pitched in college. I mean, he was through eighty-five. He was throwing smoke. And I went zero for two, of course, but I got tipped it. I had a lot of tips off. <laughs> but one, but, but 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 the highlight of the night was the man on third and the man uh, and uh, two outs, and my man hit it the first base. It should It's supposed to be his play, but. For some reason, he couldn't get to it, so I had a little speed, and I kind of backed him up, and I made an unbelievable catch, and I count the stitches before I threw my man out. And when I threw him out, it took me about 15 minutes to get to the dugout where I was running. ever so excited, you know, uh, save down with the run, did the score, and, you know, we prevent the guy from really going in. So that was a big highlight for me. That was my <laughs> baseball, I would say, uh, moment. That I would <laughs> talk about. <laughs> the cat very, not, very not the two oh for two.
1: <laughs> so ninety ninety eight, ninety nine, you're at the Warriors, and then you head to Toronto. Uh I played I played in the minor leagues in, in uh Canada, Calgary, Canada for a season. And obviously, you know, during my career I went to Toronto a lot. How'd you like Canada?
2: Love Canada. Love Toronto. I mean it was a uh, a, a hidden, unknown gym, I should say, um, in terms of people. I mean, you got all different types of nationalities that live there. Um, and it's such a clean city, a clean country, actually. Well, Toronto's a clean city. And it was um, so many things to do when I was there. You know, I lived there for two years and had a really opportunity to really get to, to know the culture, and it, it, it was great. You know, I, it was, you know, they was behind basketball, for sure. You know, hockey is their number one sport there. But now I think they caught it. Not saying they're catching up, but we got probably 15, 16, so close to 20 Canadians in the NBA now. So that's how much the game has grown in that country.
1: So we get to the one season. You retire after one And your first I, – I think your first gig after that is you coached the Charlotte Sting in the WNBA – uh, what was that like for you? Did you always, when you were done playing, did you want to coach at some level somewhere?
2: Yeah, when I, when I got done playing, I always felt like I was a coach on the court. I always wanted to get in the game. Um, but opportunity uh, came, I never thought about coaching women for sure. But uh, the Bobcats called, it was a situation, they only had 10 games left where they was getting rid of the coach. Um, and they asked me would I take over, and um, I decided to take over, and you know we went like six and four out of the ten. It was such a great experience. I really enjoyed it. Um, came back the following year before the team uh, uh dispersed. Um, Bob Johnson took over the Bobcats and uh, he dissembled the uh, the ladies in o seven and but that was a great experience, and I really enjoyed working with the ladies I mean they are true professionals i mean they relied so much on that fundamental aspect of the game, which was sickening and I uh, see why, you know, we got some talented women out there in the game.
1: All right. Now I want to get to the fun stuff. Uh, <laughs> you've had, you've had a lot of cameos in your life. Tell me about uh, you did the go daddy commercial space jam. <laughs> Tell me about curb your enthusiasm. That's a funny show.
2: Yeah, Larry David and Richard Lewis had me laughing the entire set. I mean, those guys are really—they're really funny and good to be working with. Uh, they just called me, told me, called my agent and I and said they had this this scene and explained the scene. I, and I told them once they explained it, I told them I'm the perfect guy for that scene. Uh, <laughs> it was uh, Richard. You know, he wanted to find out because he was dating um, a former athlete girlfriend. And he was really, you know, conscious about how I'm a going behind a athlete. You know how gigantic these athletes are. And blah blah blah. <laughs> and of course, that's how it all started. And the athlete happened to be myself. And you know, the scene in the bathroom was it was uh, was breathtaking. You know, I didn't know he was going to have them underneath of his shirt, where he was, like he was having a heart attack. So that was very, <laughs> that was very fun doing. I had a good time doing that.
1: How about I got a story for you after, but how was how was Saturday Night Live with Chuck with with Barkley?
2: Oh, Saturday Night, <laughs> that was funny. That was funny. The big tall black man store. and stole so <laughs> I mean, we was. Uh, I mean, we had so much fun. I didn't realize. Actually, I was only supposed, supposed to play in one scene, but then they they added me into another scene. So it was fun. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I mean, I was, was trying to not smile, but. I mean, I couldn't, I mean, I just couldn't hold it in. Got a chance to meet with Paul, Paul I mean, Nirvana, the group. I mean, yeah, everybody right. was on the set that day. Wow. That's cool. And I,
1: and I always wanted to go to a Saturday night live show. And every time it seemed like we were in New York, you know, if I'm playing the Mets or the Yankees, it never fell on a day where we could go watch him tape. We always had to be at the yard at the at the same time. And I never got mm. to go see it tape. But I, I, I was playing uh, I think it was my Reds day so it's mid 90s oh it's right after OJ and Holy I don't know Charles Park. I don't know Charles Barkley I just know it's you know he's a stud NBA player and he shoots from the hip and he's Charles <laughs> so I'm getting a phone call he hears that I'm a golfer and I get a phone <laughs> call in the, in the visiting clubhouse in Philadelphia and it's the clubhouse guy who comes over and he said hey Booney, Charles Barkley's on the phone he wants you to play golf with him tomorrow and I said, What? I said, I don't play golf. You know, I usually don't play the day of a game. It's too much right. to play golf 18, then nine, nine eights. Because you know, baseball, we play every single day. And I could I said, Tell mm-hmm. Charles I appreciate it. And I didn't know Charles at the time. I said, Tell mm-hmm. him I appreciate it, but I don't play during the season. He calls back, he calls back. And eventually I just kind of give in. And I said, Fine, <laughs> tell him I'll play. And uh, he goes, All right, tell. Tell Booney to be in the lobby at whatever time it was. He shows up in a white Bronco. And this is right around, <laughs> right around when the OJ incident went down. He went out, he had the worst golf swing I've ever seen in my life. And I had one of the funnest rounds I've ever had playing golf. And I'm an avid golfer, always I have been for about 30 years. It's to this day, it's one of the funnest 18 holes I've ever played
2: can imagine that. Yes, he had a hitch with him.
1: Oh, he had the hitch going. Booney, he goes, don't worry, I got my clubs. You know, I get these custom clubs being built right now. They're not here yet. I said, Charles, you're (laughs) telling me them custom clubs are going to change that swing? (laughs) (laughs) It it was – I went from I don't want to play, I don't want to play to fine, I'll play to – one of the funnest days on the course I've ever had, and then through the years, you know, in Vegas, I've hung out well, with Charles a little bit, and you know, back in the day. But uh, oh, he was it, yeah. was it was hilarious. We got to get him on a podcast, but he is he, uh, he is he is a funny absolutely.
2: dude. He's definitely a character for sure. You know that, and yeah. he shoots straight from the hip. <laughs>
1: I'll tell you that, and Charles got that thing about him. You know, not many people walking this earth have that it factor that Charles Barkley and it just when it right. coming from Charles everybody just kind of mm-hmm. says oh that's Charles but if anybody yeah. else said it they are probably been fired uh-huh. a long time ago because uh-huh. Chuck, it's Chuck it's okay
2: that's true that's true and they, and they know where it's coming from you know they they know it's coming from a good place yeah and a place where you know it ain't yeah cuz Chuck that's one thing about it you know i mean <laughs> People don't realize how long he's been married and he's been married, you know? <laughs> that's how crazy that's how Chuck is. I mean he's he's so open but so private at the same time too.
1: Yeah. I I I I can watch Charles all day and all night. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh what are you most proud of in your career?
2: What well, I'm most proud of my career, and I mean, besides having my babies and that sort of stuff but you know being able to accomplish what I set out to accomplish you know it's like I said it was nobody in their wildest dream thought that the dreams and the vision and you know what I was carrying around in my head that it could come to a fruition uh, for me to be here to be the smallest guy that ever played in NBA you know it's a gratifying feeling but I'm hopeful that it's someone that's Got that same similar dream, believing that he could be that player, or he can be this, or whatever he may be. And he happened to be five three or five two. Um, height is not the the, the the you know the factor. It's the skill set. It's the understanding how to be impactful for whatever the situation it is. You know, our game was a lot more physical than what it is today. And you know. Um, it was a lot more congested, I should say, too, than it is today where it wasn't more openness where you can have that free lane to go down there, you know, because as many days that I got stitches above my eyes where they told a the little fella, don't you come down here, it's the big man lane. But that's how, you know, so I'm I'm proud that I was able to fulfill my dreams and uh, hopefully that it inspired many others to not let anybody dictate who you can be or who you should be because no one, as my mom would say, can be an expert on your life. They don't know your potential, your capability, know your heart. And you, you control your own destiny.
1: I think that's that's really interesting you say that about the physicality of the NBA. I think all the major sports are going in the same direction. Definitely less mm-hmm. physicality now. You know, I'd look at my sport, baseball we just had the the bullpen of the 1990s, the nasty boys for the Cincinnati Reds come on the podcast and they were talking about today's game and how, you know, it's not handled on the field like it used to be. I remember if I got hit and it was kind of unjust, I didn't have to say anything to my, to my bullpen or my pitching staff. They would take care of business on the field. It was always an eye for an eye. You know, I see these baseball rules. Now you can't take a guy out at second base. Well, that eliminates the really great second baseman. That was our bread and butter is turning that big double play with somebody barreling in on you, try to knock you in the left field. Now anybody can turn a double play. I think you go to football and all the rules have changed a little bit, you know, from a precautionary, from a safety standpoint. But I think because the money's getting so big, they want to protect, uh, you know, their assets. And, and from an owner standpoint, there is that side that, that I understand. At the same time, man, I, I kind of like our style and, hey, we'll take care of things on the field and it's over with and we have a good time doing it. You know, I, w- I was just watching. I watched, you know, Jordan, I'm sure you saw it, The Last Dance. Mm-hmm. And, man, mm-hmm. some of those battles with those Detroit teams, it's like that NBA mm-hmm. isn't like that anymore. But, it, but it's my childhood and what I remember watching.
2: No, you're right. I mean, that's the way. The game has changed now, you know, and I guess, uh, you know, the rules and the athletes today ain't the same, um, and you're right, you know, each sports, you know, they're going through it, and um, and you got to, I guess you got to adjust, and like you said, they took it on the field back then uh, when, it, when you know, situation occurred, but and that's how we did it as well. But it's a different era now, different era, different times, and it's more predicated to the offensive side of it. Um, the defense part of the game has been lessened. And they, I guess they want more excitement, more scoring. And that regards to where, you know, they become more interested to the fan as opposed to someone playing hard nose those defense and locking you down and making it difficult for that person to get to where they need to go.
1: All right. Well, Muggsy Bogues, against all odds, uh, you're an inspiration, man. And like I said, coming in, I was a big fan. love watching you play. Uh, the Muggsy Bogues Family Foundation, uh, helping out at-risk youth. Uh, tell me a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, that's that's a passion for, mine, uh, for me and my family, you know, trying to enhance these, you know, the students and the families <clears throat> try to reach their full potential as you know, they transit. You know, to, until uh, to better citizens as adults, you know, going forward. And, you know, I created an opportunity where, you know, we offer scholarships to vocational aspect students. I mean, we want to get kids going to some trade schools where they can, you know, strictly walk out and become, you know, certified to where they can change in their narrative of their family. Um, and, you know, that was something that we also try to, um, Take care of some families at risk. I don't want to say at risk, but some challenges, challenging families who, um, who hope to help them overcome obstacles, um, give them basic necessities and needs to reach their full potential as well. Um, so we're trying to do our part and we had a 30, uh, yeah, um, 30 to 30 campaign where we feed 30 families, uh, three meals a day, um, provide them with, um, all sorts of, you know, necessity meals um educational uh aspect things in their books uh, for properly aged uh kids. So just trying to do our part to make sure that these families and kids can reach their full potential and um and that's one of the reasons the Mother Brothers Family Foundation created this this platform.
1: All right. Very good. What we do here at the end of the Boone podcast each and every time is we bring the voice of the Boone podcast. Dan Levy from a question from one of the fans.
0: Dan. Gentlemen, Muggsy, I have a question for you. And this one comes from Mike in Tucson. It's almost a two parter. One. Tell me a story about with you and Space Jam.
2: <laughs> Space Jam. Boy, what a great, great. Uh, opportunity that was. I mean, we was there for two weeks shooting, which now is one of the most iconic basketball movies that's out there now. And the likes of the Michael Jordan, the Charles Barkley and Larry Johnson, Shaw Bradley, Patrick Ewing. I mean, we was really, you know, enjoying ourselves. I want to set one time. I think I'm always telling the story. it Seems though. um we had a shoot that morning, and we supposed to have a shoot that mo- a shooting that morning, and Larry Johnson decided to get a haircut, but get a haircut from a gentleman who never cut an African American hair before, hmm. and we didn't know how that all turned out. So long story short, we didn't shoot that morning. We had to he had to find they had to find another barber uh, from Los Angeles to come in. Um, an African-American guy came and tightened Larry Johnson back up and made him more presentable to us so we could resume shooting that late afternoon so that was one of the biggest uh, moments that happened on the set that we got a big kick
0: out of. And the last part of this two-parter, you were in the NBA for some of the, the craziest times. Who was the best trash talker in the NBA and what did they say to you? The best trash talker probably would be
2: For me, the point guard will be Gary Payton. You know, GP talked a lot, quite a bit. And of course, MJ and Reggie Miller are known for talking, and, you know, that was the. But GP was the guy, you know, in my position. He loved to talk, you know, always talk about, you know, the things that he wanted to try to do. You know, come on, little fella. You know, it's always little little fella. Come on, short daddy. I got you here. I got you. There we are. You know, those type of things. But. You know, that competition, man, you love it. You know, that's the way we was brought up. And um, that's what made us the players that we were back in the day.
0: That was easily the best Gary Payne impression I've ever heard.
2: (laughs) Yeah, the glove. He was, you know, G loved to talk. But, uh, you know, he had a lot more of a different dialogue with other folks, I guess.
0: Very cool. Well, Mugsy Bugs, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We appreciate it. (laughs) Absolutely. Appreciate you guys having me. Thanks, Muggsy. All right, man. Thank you so much. That was awesome.
2: All right. Appreciate it, guys. Y'all be good. Brett, it was good talking to you, my brother.
0: Mailbag. All right, Brett. You know that sound? It is time to dig into the Brett Boone mailbag. Ready to roll? It's mailbag time. Let's go, Dan. All right, Brett. This one comes from Monica in Dallas. Hey, can you or any of your brothers or your dad dunk a basketball? Or were you guys able to dunk a basketball?
1: I can only speak for myself. In my heyday, I could dunk a tennis ball. Uh, don't know. Dad had a half scholarship to Stanford as a basketball player. He was half basketball, half baseball. He bowed out after his freshman year or maybe before. He said the guys were too good for him at that level. I don't know if he could dunk. I think Aaron could dunk. Really? In, uh, during high school. Well, Aaron's 6'2", 6'3". Yeah, and Aaron, was a he was a baller. He was a bit of a basketball player in high school. So I think Aaron could dunk. I definitely could not dunk a basketball. And I don't know if my dad could or he couldn't. You got to think. It's back in, you know, that's back in the late 60s. There wasn't much dunking going on by anybody in high school, uh, let, alone, let alone somebody that wasn't an NBA player. So I don't know about dad. I know Aaron could.
0: All right. They go back in here. All right. This one comes from Blake in San Francisco. Brett, the game has seen a lot of no-hitters and perfect games. Have you ever been on the either the good side or the bad side of a no-no or perfect game?
1: Uh, I've been on the good side. Uh, Chris Bosio in Seattle. It had to be 1993. Uh, so, yeah, I was a part of that. I've been a part of some one-hitters. Never, never as a team I've been on been no-hit.
0: Never been no hit. All right. Never a perfect game for you? Never. No. All right. All right. Okay. Well, that is going to do it for the Brett Boone mailbag. We want to thank everybody who went ahead and sent us any questions, either A on his Twitter at at the moon 29 or hit him up on Facebook and Instagram. And that is where we get those questions as well. My name is Dan Levy. That's going to do it for the podcast. I'm the technical director, producer, and voice of the Boom Podcast. Executive producer is Rich Herrera. Digital content handled by the lovely Liz Lantry. Please share the Boom Podcast with neighbors, friends, and make sure you subscribe to the Boom Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, please give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boom Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boom Podcast, I'm Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. See ya.